Well, we uh, got the call uh, Thursday, Friday, realizing Andy wasn't going to be with us this Sunday. And so, uh, prayerfully, I was considering what might be the text for us to dwell on this evening. And uh, many of you will have been with us over the past months as Andy's led us in the mornings through a series on the basics of the Reformed faith. And so we've gone through that acronym TULIP, thinking about what it means to worship a God who is completely sovereign and who works salvation in the hearts of sinners. And that all the praise and all the glory and all the work is God's, that he's a God of grace. And then last Sunday morning, if you were here with us, you'll remember that Andy took us to Luke chapter 10, and we began to think about if that's the Reformed doctrine that we believe, what does that, what should that issue in, in terms of a Reformed church and its practice? And how should that turn us outward in mission and in thinking evangelistically about the world around us. And so we thought about the sending out of those 72 from Luke 10. So I'm not going to steal any of Andy's thunder. I think he's going to continue once he's back with us next week. But I did, I did just think, at least for myself, and I wonder if not for you as well, we need to pause, perhaps, and we need to prayerfully take stock of where we're up to after the, that series that we've been working our way through. There's a lot of richness there. There's a lot of truth, some of it familiar, some of it new, perhaps, to us. But we need to ask the Lord to press that into our hearts, to change us by it, so that it doesn't just stay in our heads, but it filters down to our hearts and works itself out into our lives. So, Prayerfully, I think this is a text that can help us do that this evening. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. This is a portion of God's word that helps us to apply all of these things deeply to ourselves individually, but also to ourselves as a congregation here at London City Presbyterian Church. And what's this text all about? Well, it's it's very simple, actually, as you look at it, as you listen to it. I'm sure you grasped what this is about. It's Paul's prayer report, isn't it, for that Ephesian church that he had founded, that we read about in Acts chapter 19, having been there with them for so long, having seen God do a work and start a church in that great city, that great metropolis in Asia Minor, he now writes a letter to them, which will be circulated to the communities and the churches around Ephesus, And he writes to them here about what it is that he's been praying for, for them. How he's been praying that these truths would be pressed into their lives. And Paul prays, basically, that they would know Christ's resurrection power for the church. And that's the prayer for us tonight. That we would know Christ's resurrection power at work in us as a church. So there are really two sections that we're going to uh, take this text in this evening. The first is from verse 15 down to verse 19, where we'll have a look at how Paul begins his prayer, what he focuses on in his prayer. And then from verse 20 to verse 23, as he reaches the climax of this prayer, what it is about the resurrection power of Jesus that gets Paul so animated and so excited and should do the same for us. 
Lord willing. So Paul's prayer and then the resurrection power focus of that prayer. So first let's have a look at verses 15 to 19. This is Paul reporting. It's a, it's an, it's a bit of an odd thing, isn't it? He's writing a letter to them. He opens the letter, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, just as he tends to do. And then there in verses 3 to 14, this beautiful, long blessing to God, a Trinitarian blessing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united in the work of redemption for God's people. And it's a beautiful, poetic blessing that, that almost makes your heart sing as you listen to it. And then Paul pauses here in verse 15, and he tells them what he's been praying about for them. For this reason, he says, because I have heard of your faith. Do you see what he says there in verse 15? There are really two things that are driving him, that are driving him to pray for them and to tell them what he's praying for them. The first is looking backwards to verses 3 to 14. It's that that wonderful Trinitarian work of redemption that overflows. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And then by the time we get to the end of verse 6, we've shifted towards the Son, the Beloved. We are in the Beloved. If we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we have been placed in Him, united to Him. And just as the Father loves the Son so too he loves you in the Son. And then by the end, verses 11 to 14, we see the work of the Spirit. The Spirit who's given as a guarantee, a down payment of the redemption that we have now, but that we wait for fully on the last day. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul says, for this reason, because that's who God is, and because that's what God is doing in you, That drives me to my knees to pray for you. A contemplation, a dwelling on the character of God and the way that he saves his people drives Paul to his knees to pray for the church. That's an important point. It may seem basic to us, but Paul starts with God. He starts with God. Yes, there's a great need in front of him. He knows the need. He's been in Ephesus. He has seen what a great city, a bustling city full of sin, full of idolatry that place is. He knows the dangers faced by that church that he's left there, but he starts with God. And it's a vision of God's greatness and God's grace that drives him into prayer for the church. For this reason, verse 15. But there's another thing. Do you see what it is? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul, as he so often does, is given reports. He's got people everywhere. He, he's a networker. And he's, he's got ears and eyes in all of the Mediterranean world bringing news to him of these churches that he plants as he moves around the Roman world. And he hears reports that give him great joy. He hears that the Ephesian church, in fact, the churches in that city, are persevering in their faith in the Lord Jesus. He hears about their faith. He hears about their love and their care for one another, their love for all the saints. And that, too, drives him to his knees to pray and to give thanks for God. And it brings to mind all of those names, all of those faces that he knows in that church. So he starts with God's grace and glory, and then he hears about the people whom he knows and loves, and it drives him to prayer for the church. 
For this reason, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And brothers and sisters this evening, I, we, I'm tempted to stop right here, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm te- I won't do it, but I'm tempted to stop right here and say, this is enough for us. John Calvin, in his sermon on this text, says, everything that we do in the Christian life and everything we strive to do as the church is like beating the air without prayer. Without prayer, we just beat the air. Because, because we can be very active, we can be very busy, we can be very interested in all kinds of wonderful ministries, and yet if we're not on our knees remembering the God of glory and the God of grace and the needs of the people in front of us, then we're just busy. We're just busy. Without prayer, Calvin says, we beat the air. So let's just pause right at the start here, verse 15. We've hardly, we've hardly got going. But I want us to, I want us to pause here and apply this to ourselves. Here, among us, in this church this evening. We know there is gospel work to be getting on with. Andy challenged us with, with that last week. That we need to be driven out of ourselves. That we need to have that vision uh, held out to us in Luke chapter 10 of what it means to get out there and share the gospel, trusting in the great power and the sovereign grace of the God whom we serve. But we will not succeed in that unless we first go to our knees. We know this, but we need to hear this again from our text this evening. Without prayer, we just beat the air. So this week, the challenge is this to us. The first challenge from this text is get on your knees. Get on your knees more. Be praying. Yes, you need to be looking for those opportunities for evangelism. Yes, you desperately need to be asking the Lord to be giving you wisdom and courage to speak the good news about a Savior who offers salvation from sin, who sets people free from sin. But you've got to start on your knees. So every morning this week, can I challenge you? Can I challenge you, please, to begin the day on your knees in prayer before the God of glory and the God of grace? There are some fathers, some parents here among us this evening. Can I challenge you that hopefully you're getting on with the good daily work of family worship? That you're opening up the word with your children, with your wife, every day, whether that's in the morning or the evening or both. Are you praying before you do that, fathers, parents? Are you praying before you spend time with your children, trying to open God's word to them? Or is it that the busyness of life just bears you along? And yes, you're, you're doing it, but it's become a bit of a routine. And actually, actually, it's bereft of spiritual power and life because you're not praying before you open God's word with your family. Pray. Pray to the God of glory and the God of grace before you open his word in your home. Maybe maybe you're one of our wonderful Sunday school teachers or those who are serving in the creche, working with the children at this church. And we thank God for you. But there is a chance, if you're anything like me over time, that actually sometimes you hit Saturday night and you're preparing that lesson last minute and you're trying to put things together 
and actually you don't even spend time praying that the Lord would be present in that classroom. Pray. Pray for whatever it is that's your service for the gospel in this church or in the place where the Lord has put you during the week. Don't just get out there and get on with it. Pray to the God of glory and the God of grace that he would make you effective because it's only in coming to him with our needs that we are going to see him at work through our action as we go. The same thing is true for our, for our growth in gospel grace, isn't it, in our personal lives. Whether it's understanding the things that we're reading day by day more. Whether it's growing in sanctification. Whether it's actually coming along and sitting here in a sermon and being able to hear what it is that the Lord has to say to you. Either by way of convicting you of your sin or by way of comforting you and building you up and encouraging you by the gospel. We need to come having prayed. What are your afternoons like on a Lord's Day? Probably lots of good things. Probably lots of travel, if you're like most of us. Probably lots of hospitality, which is a lovely, wonderful thing about this congregation. Is there time spent in prayer on the Lord's Day so that you can come back in the evening ready with an open heart, with expectancy to hear the Lord pray? To hear the Lord speak to you. What is our reflex? Paul's reflex, as he begins this letter, is amazing. There's so many things he must have to teach them. In fact, he gets on to that, doesn't he, in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 of this letter. But he pauses, and his reflex is to pray and to tell them what he's praying about. Under God, might that be our reflex this coming week, that we would drop to our knees more and more, morning and evening and during the day, to cover our gospel efforts in prayer. Paul says, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks. I remember you. He's got a prayer routine, evidently. He's got a schedule. He's disciplined in his prayer. And, Paul says, what does he do when he prays, remembering them? He gives thanks. He gives thanks. Question 98 of our catechism asks us, what is prayer? And it gives us all kinds of wonderful elements that scripture teaches about prayer. But do you remember what the last one is? The last one is grateful acknowledgement of his mercies. Is that what characterizes your prayer? Grateful acknowledgement of the mercies of God in your life and in the life of this congregation. Do we have grateful hearts Quick to praise God, quick to thank Him for the many blessings that we have. Do we remember one another by name? People in this church that we've maybe just met this morning for the first time. People that we've known for a long time and we have a bit more insight into their struggles and their needs. Do we remember them by name with thanksgiving before the Lord? Do you remember your minister by name daily? Do you pray for Andy? If you don't, please do. Please don't let a day go by without praying for your minister, the one who watches over and shepherds you. Pray for him by name. Pray for him specifically. Give, give thanks to the Lord for Andy Pearson and for his family and his work here among us. Do you pray for your elders? Do you pray for your deacons? We need your prayers desperately. Please pray for us by name. Give thanks for us. Pray as Paul does and bring these names before the God of glory 
and the God of grace. But Paul goes on because he's got a very specific goal in mind that they would understand his prayer for them has three specific aspects, one of which is even more important than the others, as we'll see. We'll get on to those three what's, which appear in verses 18 and 19. But first of all, we have to pause in verses 17 and 18 to see to see how it is that Paul's prayer is joined up and made effective in the lives of those believers in the churches at Ephesus. In verse 17, he says he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might do what? May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Do you see what Paul prays? Before he even gets on to these three very specific aspects of his prayer, he pauses to say he's asking God that he would open their minds, open their hearts by his spirit. He prays to the Father that through the Son, the spirit would be given. What kind of spirit does Paul talk about there in verse 17? Do you see it? That the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation would be at work in them. We know, and we know not least from chapter 2 of Ephesians, that it's the Holy Spirit who gives new life in the very first instance. That none of us tonight come here as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit having worked in our hearts. But it's not just that one-time spiritual work of bringing us to new life, is it? No, the Holy Spirit then takes up residence in us as a spirit of wisdom and revelation, constantly helping us to see things more clearly as we grow. I read this week uh, about a project that was begun by an MIT researcher in Boston who grew up in India, uh, moved to the United States to be educated, and did very well, and has stayed on and now teaches as a cognitive scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But he has not forgotten his people and his community in India. And so he started a non-profit group called Project Prakash. And evidently Prakash in Sanskrit means light, Project Light. And what he's doing there is a really clever combination of his research with a humanitarian need because he has brought together people and expertise and resources to perform surgeries on those children who are born blind, born blind with cataracts. They can't see. So from the, from birth, they're blind. And yet with surgery, those cataracts can be removed and they can have sight again. And so he's brought this together. And it's been a wonderful success, evidently, through many parts of India. And he describes what it's like. I wonder, what do you think it's like for one of these children who comes out of the operating room and the bandages there on their eyes are removed for the first time? What do you think that would be like? Well, those children have described what it's like. And and he recounts it this way. He says, there's one boy who said... He sat there and he was blinking, blinking in the brightness, and he didn't know what to what to make of it. it. His vision was blurry. He didn't see clearly immediately. 
It was blurry. It was incoherent. It was saturated by shapes and colors and light swirling around. Yes, he could see, but he didn't know what he was looking at. His eyes had been opened, but they weren't yet connected to his brain in a way that could make sense of his environment. And over time, over weeks and months and years of training and teaching, those new eyes were connected to his brain in such a way that he can now function normally in the world around him. And now no longer are there swirls of light and color, beautiful as those might be. Now he can see people and trees and cars and he can read. And there's this lovely picture on their website of this boy sitting there with the light shining on his face and a a smile as he reads because he can see. And I want to say to you this evening that that's exactly what Paul prays for these people in Ephesus. That not only would their eyes be open, that the bandages would be taken off, and now the cataracts are gone, and they can see the Lord Jesus. Not just that immediate sight and vision, but that continually, day by day, he prays that those new eyes would be connected to the neural network of the brain. And that we, not just the Ephesian believers, but that we today at LCPC could day by day grow in our vision and our insight and our understanding of the glory of the salvation that's been given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Paul says it happens only by the power of the Spirit at work in you, a spirit of wisdom and revelation who enlightens the eyes of our hearts. Verse 18. One commentator says, what does that mean to have the eyes of your heart enlightened? Well, it really just means that you don't just see with your eyes, you don't just see with your mind and be able to acknowledge that something's true. It's that you see and perceive and know with your heart. That's what Paul's praying for. For them, that we would not only know that we are totally depraved and unbelievably lost without the grace of God, but that we would know that in our hearts and that we would give praise to the God who saved us by grace, that we would not only know that we've been unconditionally elected from before the creation of the world, chosen by God to be his sons and daughters, not just know that here, but that we would know That God has chosen us. He's called us to be his children. We would see that with our hearts. That we would know that the Lord Jesus Christ has perfectly worked once and for all redemption for us. That we would grasp that with our hearts. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. To have spirit-enlightened eyes in our hearts, Paul prays. He goes on in chapter 3 and uses similar language to talk about the kind of knowledge that he wants them to grow in. This is not just propositional head knowledge. It's knowledge in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, of the mystery of God's grace in Christ. It's knowledge in chapter 4, verse 13, of the Son of God. It is knowledge of Jesus Christ as my Savior. My Lord, it's a personal knowledge of my Lord. Uh, in our house, uh, torches, what we would have called flashlights, go missing quite often. And that's because 
uh, little boys love to play with torches and explore things around the house and in the garden at night and in cupboards and things. So we have, we have, I don't know how many torches scattered throughout the house, uh, and they're always shining on various things. The spirit Paul points us to here is like a torch shining a light brightly on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is to point us, to point us to the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so it's like a, it's like a torch with a focused beam. But it's even better than that, actually, because I don't know about your LED torches at home, but it's not that glaring white, bright, cold light. It is the glorious, warm light that the Spirit shines on the diamond who is the Lord Jesus Christ as it turns with all of its facets. That's the kind of light focused on the Lord Jesus. But even that leaves us cold because it's not a diamond, it's a person. It's our Savior that the Spirit points us to and highlights for us. The Spirit highlights and illuminates for us that Jesus loves us with an unending and unconditional love. The Spirit highlights for us Jesus' atoning sacrifice in our place. The Spirit illuminates brightly for us the fact that Jesus bore our curse on the cross, that he kept covenant for us in his perfect life. The Spirit wants you to see and wants you to know this coming week more about the glorious work of the Lord Jesus for you. And isn't that exactly what we need? Constant, growing, day-by-day spiritual enlightenment. Not of the esoteric kind that's promised in lectures around this city or by other religions Uh, perhaps from the East, not that kind of enlightenment. This is the spiritual enlightenment that is gospel enlightenment that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. If you can give me just one more moment to try to illustrate this for us. Uh, Some of you might know the, the nature writer Annie Dillard, and she writes as well about early, early examples over a century ago now of when surgery became possible to relieve blindness and of what those patients experienced. And a little girl that she writes about who was given sight for the first time at the age of eight, she was brought into a garden in the afternoon. And what did she do? She just, she just stood there, speechless and in awe. She had no words. And what was she looking at? She was looking at a tree that stood in front of her. And she doesn't describe for us exactly how much of that, how much of the depth she could perceive or what colors or what, but she stood transfixed by the tree. And the only thing she could say is that she loved the tree with the lights in it. She loved the tree with the lights in it. She said, how beautiful. Is that, is that what you come away from your time reading the Bible and praying with? How beautiful, how beautiful is the tree with the lights in it. The Lord Jesus Christ, who on that tree finished the work of redemption for us, is glorious, Paul says. Is that the glorious vision of your Savior that you have? 
If you are here tonight and you don't know where you stand with the Lord Jesus, perhaps you have been coming along and you're so interested, you're so interested, but you don't, you've not made a commitment to turn definitively from your sin and cling by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you tonight, I hope you realize that you are blind to the glory that I'm talking about. Blind to the glory that this passage is talking. You have no idea what I'm talking about in reality. Because you have not had your eyes opened to see the brilliance of the love and the redemption that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. But can I plead with you? That if the words that Paul uses, the words that you're hearing this evening are in any way attractive to you, that you would fall to your knees, even this evening, in repentance, in faith, crying out to you, crying out to the Lord, Lord, I need to know you. I need to have you help me to know you. I need to be forgiven for my sins so that I can know the glorious beauty of redemption. If that's you this evening, don't Delay. Make this your prayer for the first time, perhaps. Lord, enlighten the eyes of my heart. Help me to believe. Why would you stay in the misery of blindness and darkness when this offer is held out to you by a loving Savior? But most of you sitting here this evening have already known that wonderful joy of having the scales drop away for the first time. And what you need if you're like me, is that daily enlightenment with the help of the Spirit to see more clearly. Well, John Owen, John Owen speaks about this in this beautiful little book called The Glory of Christ, which, by the way, if you've not read, I can commend wholeheartedly to you as one way to put into practice the kind of thing we're talking about tonight. John Owen, in The Glory of Christ, says, this is exactly what we need, a greater vision of Christ's beauty that the Spirit can open the eyes of our hearts. He says, if we can only grasp the glory and the beauty of Christ by faith, what will we receive? We'll receive a gracious revival from inward decays. Do you hear how he puts that? And a gracious revival. If that's you, if you feel flat, if you feel dull in your Christian life, then what you need is a greater vision of the glory of Christ. Owen goes on, he says, we'll find fresh springs of grace, even, and he says, especially those in their latter days. And I'm not going to presume that I know who is in their latter days here, but some of us are a bit more gray than others, aren't we? And some of us perhaps have reached stages in our lives where we need to be refreshed by returning to those springs of living water and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's That's what is held out for us in this passage this evening. Is that you? Is that me? Is that what we desperately need tonight? Owen points us to Psalm 92.12, which tells us that the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. What a beautiful image of the one who basks in that glory and that light and those springs of life that we hunger and thirst for. But we've got to press on to to make a finish this evening. And so we go on in verses 18 and 19, and we see that Paul prays for them. He gives thanks for them very specifically, regularly, and he asks that the Holy Spirit would be for them and in them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, helping them to see more clearly day by day. And what does he want them to see? He wants them to see three things. Do you see the three what's that begin in verses 18 and 19? First one, what is 
the hope to which he has called you? The second one, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And the third one, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Three things that he wants us to know with the help of the Holy Spirit as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to have hope. He wants us to know about an inheritance. And he wants us to know about power. But do you see, they're not balanced. They're not symmetrical, are they? The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. And then it really builds. Do you see how in the third one, Paul almost is at a loss for words. He starts kind of stumbling over himself. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And then he goes on. Do you see, it's the third one that Paul really wants to get to. Hope, inheritance, and power. If we had more time, I'd love to go back and look again at that opening section and see how in verses 4 and 5, the hope of our calling has already been laid out for us. How in verses 11 to 14, the riches of this inheritance has already been laid out for us. Can we, do, can we, can we dwell just a moment on that inheritance, please? It's a glorious inheritance, Paul says, isn't it? It's a glorious inheritance of grace. It's not the kind of inheritance that my children are likely to receive from me, uh, which will probably consist of a whole load of books, maybe some music, a few letters and lots of photos, and, and maybe very little else, if I'm honest. It's not that kind of inheritance. It's an overflowing, glorious inheritance. Paul says later on in chapter 3, verse 8, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. I read, again, something that brought this home to me just this week, that a few years ago in in Budapest, there were two brothers living homeless, living rough outside the city, taking up residence in a little cave, gathering scrap and selling that in order to make some money to buy some food. And they were suddenly contacted one day by some people they'd met at a homeless shelter And these people said, look, lawyers have just got in touch with us, and they named you too, and they want to have a word with you. And it's good news. And so these brothers sat down with the lawyers, only to find out that their grandmother, with whom they'd never really had any kind of relationship, had died and had left an inheritance for them. And this inheritance happened to be worth about four billion pounds, split between the two brothers who in that instant go from rags, literally, to riches. An unsearchable, overflowing inheritance, unlooked for, given to them, dropped in their laps. A massive inheritance. That is on the order of what Paul's talking about here. That each of us in Christ receives a glorious inheritance of grace and abundance of spiritual blessing. Conversely, in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to go on to say in verse 5 that there are some who are going to miss out on that inheritance. Specifically, those who are sexually immoral, who are impure, who are covetous, that is, an idolater. Those have no part, no inheritance in the kingdom of God, Paul says. If that characterizes your life and you have not renounced those things and turned to cling to Christ by faith, then you have no part in this glorious inheritance, says Paul. 
But if you once turn to Christ, if you embrace him by faith, if you come to him repent, then this glorious inheritance of riches, far greater than four billion pounds, is yours. Each of yours is what Paul says. It's a glorious inheritance. So there's hope, there's an inheritance, but finally there's resurrection power, which is where Paul lands definitively at the end of our passage. He introduces it there in verse 19, and he continues to expand on it in verses 20 to 23. He moves from gospel prayer to gospel power, and it's a resurrection power. And Paul can hardly pile up the phrases, the adjectives enough as he gets into this. And we don't want to let our eyes or our ears gloss over at this point. Some of this, some of this sounds almost like formulaic language, doesn't it? Far above all rule and authority, put all things under his feet, which is his body, the fullness of all. It's all, we can almost get lulled into not hearing this in the way Paul wants us to. For Paul, this is the explosion of what it looks like for the resurrection power of Christ to be at work in you and in the church. What kind of power is it? Well, verse 20, it's very clear. It's resurrection power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And it's ascension power when he seated him at the right hand. There are the echoes of Psalm 110 that Adrian read for us earlier. It's power, resurrection power, kingly power, enthronement power. Jesus is now the king and the head of the church, Paul teaches us. God the Father has worked by his spirit in Jesus the Son by raising him from the grave and Don't miss it. What does verse 19 say? Verse 19 says that that power is at work toward us who believe. That's amazing, I would suggest to you tonight. If you understand the import of that phrase, that this resurrection power, Paul says here, is for us. It's for the church. Jesus is Lord. Paul says. He's Lord over all things. All things are being subjected to his feet. Nothing is going to be omitted in that rule of the Lord Jesus. And that's the king and head who is now set over the church, which is his body, which is joined to the head by faith. So we finish with a few applications, thinking about this resurrection power at work among us. What should this make us do? How should this make us Respond. First of all, it should lead us to a deep humility and repentance. It should lead us to bow our knees before our, ra- our risen king, our resurrected king. Why do we gather to worship here? Why do you come Lord's Day after Lord's Day? It's not simply to express yourself. It's not simply to enjoy fellowship with one another. It's because your king tells you to come. Your king calls you to come. He calls you to gather with his people and to give him the praise that he's due. Kingly praise, royal praise. That's why we're here. And so we need to be humble and we need to repent of our disloyalty and our tepid service, our lukewarm service and love before our risen king. A deep humility and a deep reverence, a deep repentance. But secondly, knowing that the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus is at work among us, We should have a deep 
gratitude. It takes us back to the beginning of Paul's prayer with that thanksgiving. Gratitude for the gospel blessings that we've received. Because they're from him. They're from our king. Given to us. So as we look around us in our church here, our congregation, and we see new faces joining us, we need to give thanks to our king and head because he has brought them to us. And when those new visitors say, I'd like to join you, I'd like to become a member, we need to give great thanks and praise to our king for those new members. When people come along and they hear the gospel and and they're saved, they're converted, they're changed, we need to give great praise and thanks for the gospel power, the resurrection power at work in those brothers and sisters. When we've got new children being born to covenant families in this church, we give praise and thanks to the king and head of the church for adding to our numbers. We give him praise for a building to gather in. We give him praise as king and head for his bountiful care to us. And finally, knowing that Jesus, as resurrected king, rules for our good in this church, we should have a deep trust, a deep trust, in his direction and his provision and his protection of the work of the gospel at LCPC. Calvin says again in his sermon on verse 22, what does this boil down to? It boils down to this. Whatever we need, we go to Jesus and we ask for it, and he can provide it. That's how simple it is in this text. The king and the head of the church with his resurrection power, can provide everything we need. Because what is resurrection power, brothers and sisters? It's the kind of power that takes a dead body and stands it on its feet. It's the kind of power that sees a corpse and is able to breathe new life into that dead corpse and empower it for living again. And not only that, the resurrection power that was at work in Jesus meant that he was raised to new life a new kind of life, no longer can he see any kind of corruption. His body will never die again. That's the kind of resurrection power we're talking about. So when you get on your knees this week and you pray, that's the kind of power that's available from your king and your head and your Lord. What are you going to ask him for? I hope you're going to ask him for what seems impossible. Because resurrection is impossible. But that's exactly what we've seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the impossible by resurrection power. I recall uh, Andy's, some of Andy's first words to me when we came to this church just over three and a half years ago. And, uh, and I was actually, I was really struck by them. Andy said in a conversation, he didn't really know me yet, uh, and we hadn't yet said uh, we were committing to membership in this church. But Andy said, you know what? Just last week, before you showed up, I was praying that the Lord would bring a family to LCPC, a new family. And here you came through the door. Now, brothers and sisters, is that, is that an accident? Is that providence? Of course it's providence. It's provision. It's resurrection power at work to bless the church by bringing new family. Not because of us, but because that's an answer to Andy's prayer. And that's a bold prayer. That's a striking prayer. Is that the kind of prayer that we're praying for this church? That the Lord would bring families to invest in this church. That the Lord would bring new believers to join us. 
that the Lord would bring young men who are able to be trained and discipled to be office bearers, to do the work of the deacons, and to lead and shepherd as elders in this church. Is that what we're praying? Are we praying fervently that the Lord would bring us an assistant minister to help with the growing work at this church and come alongside Andy in the work of the gospel here? Are those the things that we're praying? Are we praying that specifically? Are we praying that we would have a place to house that assistant minister as soon as he arrives? Because the Lord can do that. Of course he can. Please, would you join this week in praying on the basis of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work for the good of the church, this church, our church. Would you pray the impossible? Would you pray the specific and the impossible this week as we seek to see the Lord glorified and the gospel go forth? Well, we'll close with this, and thank you for your patience this evening with a wonderful, rich text. Uh, some of you will know, in that first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, how the story ends. Once Aslan, the lion, has been slain at the stone table, and the witch has been defeated, and the table has cracked, what, what happens? He comes to life again, doesn't he? So Aslan is resurrected. He's raised to new life, bigger and more powerful than ever. And what does he do? He begins to breathe on those statues into which the creatures of Narnia had been frozen. And what happens? They thaw into new life. The winter that had gripped that land begins to thaw and melt away into a glorious, beautiful spring. He bounds into battle and with a roar defeats all the enemies of Narnia. That's what happens when resurrection power is unleashed. And it's a beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus wants to do for his church through the power that he has released in his resurrection, made available to us by his spirit. Let's pray earnestly. Let's pray fervently this week that we would know that power personally and that our church would see that resurrection power at work over the coming weeks and months. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your kindness to us and your grace in the Lord Jesus. And we do pray that we would witness you by your power and in your grace at work among us in new and amazing ways in weeks and months to come. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.